Our sermon text this morning comes from Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I think there are, are Bibles in the back if you need one of those. Uh, but this is Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 9. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there, there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. Um, so let us get green that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and on our, and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers, uh, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? This is the word of the Lord. Right. Good morning, everyone. Let me just say, maybe this is obvious, but... uh, that like you might be hearing that text and be wondering like what in the world is going on and maybe uh if you've been here for some of the other Ezra Nehemiah sermons you're like that's pretty typical most Sundays like what's happening I mean in this text we've got this like loud cry people are being sold into slavery there's famine there's talks of taxes and mortgages and you like you probably get the sense that all is not well but like what exactly isn't going well? And so I thought even just before we get into the meat of the sermon, I thought I'd just like orient us on what we just heard and what we're uh, reading. And then and then we'll dive deeper into the text. But here's the, here's the big picture. You read that, bottom line, here's what's happening. It is, this text is a story of selfishness and brutality that's being practiced particularly by rich Jewish people against the poor their poor jewish neighbors and they are so loyal to the dollar of their day um, that they would see that their own neighbor's daughter be sold into slavery so they could make four percent interest on a loan or whatever the interest was that they were charging so that's this that's the scene that's the facts but here's the question when you come to a text like this how did we get here so you don't like at least I don't think many people wake up one day and think, you know what I want to do with my life is take advantage of the poor. And I think what I'll do is I'll fill my belly really full while other people are starving. Like that just feels like a good path forward. I don't think that happens. So how do you get here? How do you get to the point where God's people are, are so unconcerned with their neighbors that they would make money at their expense? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to answer that question. We're going to dive into Nehemiah 5 and 6. 
Because at the end of the day, like those are the facts. That's what's happening. But I really think that this is a story about fear, which might, might strike you as a little bit odd. But what I think you see in this story is that Jerusalem didn't have a wall. And so all those who were living in this city were really scared because they were vulnerable to the enemies that were wanting to attack them. People like Sam Ballot and Tobiah were getting ready to come in and kill people and they didn't have a defensive wall. And so they were scared. But this story of Nehemiah, I think, is really trying to get us to see that though Nehemiah, he's going to come and he's going to rebuild this wall for people so they feel safe and are no longer in fear of the enemy outside. I think what it's doing is it's showing that this wall is built so that they could see that fear and realize they've lost another fear that they should never have given up. They do no longer fear God. That's what I think. This story is trying to get us to see. And what's at stake here is their very joy. Because they don't fear God, they're ultimately miserable and not going to be happy. Because the thing is, God is meant to be feared. But, I mean, here's the question. Do we even know what that, like, do we even know what that means? Do we even know, like, what does it mean to fear God? And maybe, maybe if you know what it is, then the question is, do you do it? Do you actually fear God? Or are we like the people in this text who don't fear God? And so maybe you do fear God, but here's then the question. Do you fear him in such a way that it brings you great joy? Like, how would that even be possible? Fear God, and it stirs up good, awesome delight in the Lord. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at this text, and we're going to see not only the call to fear the Lord, but a call to fear the Lord for your very joy. And so that's where we're going to go, and I'd love to pray. And then we'll look at the text together. Father, thank you that you sent your son so that we don't have to fear punishment and death and destruction, but let us be those who see in you, O God, one who deserves our awe and trembling and reverence, that you are not to be trifled with, that sin is serious. Please help us see how serious this is as we stand in your presence and yet the good news of the gospel, that we have nothing to fear because of your son. And so, Father, be with us as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. Would you take your word and would you transform our hearts? In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's what I want to do. Let's go to Nehemiah. We're going to go to chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just immerse ourselves in the scene. You've seen the big picture, but I want you, I want you to see it in the text. So here we go. Now, there arose, this is Nehemiah 5, verse 1, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So you can see already, here's the, here's the situation. You've got Jews who are crying out against other Jews, which is very significant because the mission that Nehemiah is on is to build this wall. And if you've ever watched like medieval era movies, you know, just movies with castles on Lord of the Rings or whatever it is, like, you know how important the wall is. Like the wall, it's what keeps the enemy out. And so I don't think it's any accident that in chapter five and six, what you're going to see is you're going to see that they're going to finish building the wall. And God puts this story right in the middle of that. Like they're building it and they're going to finish it. And as it's being finished, he puts this story right in the center. 
in order that we would see that while they're working to keep the enemy out of their own city, that there's this enemy, the wickedness of their own hearts, that this wall very clearly is not addressing. So um, let's put, let me put it this way, just so we can, we can get the intensity of the scene. Like, it's pretty grim. So the storyline of the Bible up until this point is full of a bunch of scenes. There's other scenes, but one significant thread is slavery. And God's people are not, um, they are not unfamiliar with slavery. So you could just, you probably the first thing you think of, they were slaves in Egypt. And what does God do? He raises up Moses, he freezes, he freezes people, and where do they go? They go into a land that they can call their own, that would be God's people in his place, and they would be at rest and safe. And that's actually the same land that Nehemiah is standing on now. But we're talking hundreds of years before we get to this point, and what happens in that time? Well, they're in the land, and they sin, and so then Assyria comes in and destroys Israel. And where are God's people? Slaves, again. And then, a couple hundred years later, Babylon comes in. And they, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. More of God's people now in slavery. Until, kind of like the days of Moses, God raises up someone. In this case, he raises up Persia and the Persian king to free God's people out of slavery. It's not Egypt anymore. It's now Babylon. Frees them out of slavery to go back into the promised land. And now they're there. And now, they're in slavery again. But this time, it's not Assyria, it's not Babylon, it's not God's enemy. Who is it? It's their Jewish neighbor. That's who it is. Like, do you feel like the intensity? The, the people of God has spent their, almost their whole history in slavery to the enemies of God, and now it's their own people that are forcing their own brothers and sisters and neighbors and daughters to go into slavery. That's the grim picture. That's what Nehemiah is picking up on. And therefore, I think there's a slide that says this. Sorry if, if, it, if it's not there. But th- this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. It might be a couple slides before this. Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of God restoring his people to the temple the word and land to show their lasting need for the promised Messiah. So they get back in the land, they build this temple, they are committed again to the word, and now they're, they're rebuilding the land, they're rebuilding the wall, and all of it's going to show, oh, God's people are still broken and in need of a savior. And so then Nehemiah zooms in. If that's Ezra Nehemiah, which was one book, now Nehemiah's story zooms in on one of those three on the land. It zooms in on rebuilding the wall. And as it's rebuilding the wall, I think what it's doing, it's it's telling the story that as Nehemiah rebuilds the wall to address the fear of the enemy on the outside, he rebuilds it to show the people's lack of fearing God and therefore their need for the promised Messiah so their hearts would fear God. Nehemiah tells the story of rebuilding the wall because they fear the enemy outside and it's, it's going to show that God's people have lost the fear of God and need the Messiah to restore their fear of God. That's what I think Nehemiah is doing. And so now let's pick up the scene because I think you'll see now as we pick it up in verse five. So we're going Nehemiah chapter five, verse five. And here's what we read. Now, our flesh, that's other Jews, is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet 
we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Okay, so there's famine. The people are struggling. They're like, how are we going to get any money? And they go to the rich people. Give us a loan. Can you help us out? Sure, yeah, just, uh, yep, no problem. They give them a loan, charge them interest. And, and it's, so, it's so heavy that they have to eventually sell their daughters into slavery. That's, this, that's what's going on. And here's the problem. The, the problem is not just loans in general. That's not, I don't think the Bible has a problem with um, just loans, broadly speaking. Here's the problem. The problem is when you're giving a loan and it's, it's crushing someone who's poor. Why? Why is that a problem? Because you're supposed to take care of the poor. What are you supposed to do? Get, loan them money? No, you're supposed to give them what they need. You're supposed to build them houses so they have a place to stay. You're supposed to give them food, not like, you know what, hey, you're going to have to pay this back with interest because they can't. So um, here's just one, here's just one text. There's, there's plenty of texts in the Bible that call God's people to not take advantage of the poor. Here's one. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. You see, you see what's going on? Like you don't, don't do that. So there's a world of difference. Let's just be clear. There's a world of difference between a mortgage that you can afford, but you're using someone else's money to pay in the beginning, and therefore they're going to get some interest from you, and going and charging people at Boise Rescue Mission rent and fees and interest, and they can't even afford food, but you're trying to nickel and dime them out of nothing. They don't have anything, and you're trying to get rich while they continue stuck in poverty. That's the scene. No surprise. Here's verse six. Here's Nehemiah. Here's his reaction. I was very angry. <laughs> See, he's pretty funny. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, here's the question. Why is he angry? Well, we know, we know the facts, but, but when Nehemiah assesses the situation, what does he say the, the, the core foundational problem is? Why has this happened? Now we get to verse 9, to fear the Lord. This thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? So there you go. They didn't wake up one day and say, I want to take advantage of the poor. Here's what happened. They stopped fearing God. That's what happened. So the, like, the picture here is that they know that the rich know, I shouldn't take advantage of the poor, but they have no fear of God. And so what are they? Well, they just want to live for their own convenience, make another buck, make another dollar at someone else's expense. That's what's happening. Now, if that's the bottom, if that's at the very foundation that they do not fear God, then now the question is, well, what is that? What is fearing God? What does that even mean? So let, um, maybe this is helpful. Let's just be honest. Um, like we, most of us don't have like this comfy, cozy relationship with fear. Um, like, uh, I mean, we're even using the phrase fear of God as if it's a good thing. Like, should we even do that? Because you might be saying like, aren't we supposed to love God? Like, does, I mean, God loves us. Like what, why are we talking about fear that might feel awkward? So, so let me just, um, here's, here's maybe a helpful way to put it. Like our kids, you know, they, they did the Halloween thing, loved it, you know, get, get a bunch of candy that we don't let them eat. And, uh, we eat and. Uh, but it's really generous of them. Um, and, uh, but in general, like, I'm just not a big Halloween guy. Uh, I, first of all, I'm not a scary movie guy it, because they scare me. That's why, uh, in general. Um, and, 
I'm not like the Halloween decoration thing. It's just not, I don't love it. Like it, it's not winsome and beautiful to see like skeletons in these like bloody scenes that are like around, like it just doesn't, doesn't do for me. Um, like the whole thing is built around fear. That's what the Halloween is built around fear. And so um, the question is, when we talk about fear of God, are we supposed to be thinking that God is like a, around the corner and ready to pop out and just like scare us? Like is, that, like, is that what we mean or something different? And I'm sure you know, like, that's not, definitely not what the Bible, that would be awkward, first of all. Um, and that's not what it means. So then what does it mean? What does it mean when, then when Nehemiah says, you, you don't fear the Lord? Um, and here's the thing. I, I, I think it's worth pausing here because it is far too easy to become so familiar with God that we forget his holiness. The, the move everywhere right now is casual, casual, more casual. And to, and to pause and take something really serious, it, it doesn't happen very often. So I think it's worth stopping and saying, what does it actually mean to fear God? So she, let me just, this is maybe, if I'm going to give you one word, if fear of God is a hard, like it's hard to put together, here's one word, awe. That you would have an awe towards God or reverence. This is Douglas Stewart. He writes a commentary on Exodus. Here's what he, here's what he says about the fear of the Lord. He says this, The fear of the Lord demands that God's people stand always in awe of him, appreciating his supremacy and greatness, that they would fear the consequence of disobeying his will, will and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. So here's what, I w- here's what I'd want you to think about when we're talking about fear. We need to be really careful not to downgrade the fear of the Lord to just respecting him. The reason is, like, it, just picture this scene happening in Nehemiah's day. I don't think it's a stretch for us to imagine that the people there in this day have a respect for God. They just in general are like, you know what? Yeah, we respect him. He's, he's worth um, something and worth some honor. And they, they would pay their due respects to this God. And so to respect him lacked something. They lacked true awe and reverence. They lacked trembling in his presence. And we know that. Why? Because they take his word lightly. They're like, you know what? It's no big deal. If we extract all of this interest on the poor and they can't ever get out of this to the point that they have to sell their kids into slavery. They have no fear of God. They don't tremble at his words. They know his rules and they're like, you know what? Not a, not a big deal. I'm, you know, I'm just going to, that's all right. We can just let this one go. They ought to stand in awe of God. They ought to tremble at his presence. They ought to fear him. So here's the image. This is probably no more familiar image. And in a book, and you probably, many of you probably already know what image I'm going to pull from, and that is C.S. Lewis in Narnia. If you don't know the story, Lewis's Jesus character is Aslan, who is a lion. Now, here's, here's the thing about a lion. When you approach a lion, how ought you approach a lion? You don't approach it to pet it like it's a little kitty. You know, like, oh, it's just my little pet kitty. That's just not, that's not what you do. You approach a lion with fear, knowing at any moment this thing could totally take your life away. 
And so you get this line in the book from Susan, who's talking to Mr. Beaver. If you don't know the story of Aslan, this probably just sounds really weird. Um, but anyways, just follow with me here. The scene happens. She's talking to a beaver. Um, and Susan talks to a beaver. And, um, and she says this, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That's appropriate, right? That's appropriate. Feel nervous. And she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Do you see the awe? Like the reverence? That you should fear being in his presence and tremble. But the good news, here's the, here's the reality. The good news of the gospel is that because of Christ, you can rest knowing he's good. And you could be in his presence, a presence that would, would inspire awe and trembling and know that you are safe in his presence, even as he himself is meant to be feared. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why fear can be joy. We'll get there in a second. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So here we go. Um, so let's just, let, okay, now I, I don't want you to hear me wrongly. There is a kind of fear that we should not have. Here's First John. Some of you might be already thinking this. You're like, Don, maybe you're going too far. Here's a fear we're not supposed to have. First John 4.18, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has, been, has not been perfected in love. So here's what I don't. I don't want you to hear fear of God and for you to think of an abusive father who's, who's just going to punish you at any turn. Or like a slave master who's going to just whip you into submission. Because that's not the picture in the Bible. What's the picture in the Bible? The Bible pictures our relationship with God as sons and daughters who've been adopted into his family, who the father loves and therefore cast out fear. What kind of fear? It's very clear. The kind of fear that deals with punishment. So here's what you need to know. The fear of God does not mean that you're trembling, scared, that you're going to be punished. If you're in Christ, you have no condemnation. So you don't need to be fear his punishment. But if you are not under Christ, then you fear his punishment. If, if you're thinking, is it, would it be okay if I just run away from him, if I just disobey his word, if I take his word lightly, then you ought to fear. You ought to be scared. And even as those who have been covered in his safety, we should tremble in his presence. So here's, yes, we need to know that we are adopted and loved, but we have to be careful. Not to think that there is no right fear of God, even as we have no condemnation, we should not so soften our God with the good news of the gospel that we fail, fail to be in awe. That's not what the gospel's trying to do. The gospel's trying to announce the good news that you're safe, but you're safe from a really holy and awesome God. So let me just see if this image that I heard could kind of put those two threads together. How is it that we could be safe and not fear punishment, and yet fear this God. So um, I'm just, I'm just going to take this from someone else. So here's, I, I heard this. This is another thing I heard that I'm taking from someone else. Like people call me a full-time pastor, and I think it's just, just call me a full-time paster because I just copy and paste, copy and paste. So full-time paster. And so I'm just pasting this from someone else, and that I took from someone else. So is, I'm not trying to be original, um, but here it is. I hope this is helpful. Picture... Uh, you're climbing in the mountains. You're just in the Himalayas. And um, you're on this, this rock face. 
and, and it's just huge. And you're on the side of it and you look out and you see this massive storm coming your way. And you know that, that is a storm that is to be feared. Like that's a storm that's going to bring down. And here you are on the side of a mountain and the storm's coming right at you. And so you start climbing and you start looking and you're looking for any crevice, any hole that you could get in so that you could be safe when the storm comes. And as you climb, then you find in Christ that there's safety. And so you, you see an opening and you climb in. And as you climb in, that storm hits. And as it hits, you see just the hurricane winds and the massive force of this storm crash up against this rock face. And you're safe. But make no mistake, that storm is massive and meant to be feared. And you tremble. And you have to be so thankful that you're safe. And you not, shouldn't be like, yeah, no, no big deal. I think I'll just go out there. It's just a light rain. That's not the reaction. But you can see how you could be safe and not fear punishment and yet fear the awesomeness and the holiness of our God. That's the picture. And that's what happens now in Nehemiah's day when he says they don't fear God. What did they do? Well, they downgraded who God is. And they look at God and instead of seeing a God who's full of force and power and might like a hurricane, they just downgrade him to a cool summer breeze on in a late afternoon, which is just totally not the right picture. And so when they fail to fear him, when you, you this would be a way to say, it. when you fail to fear God, you fall into sin. When you fail to feel God, fear God, you're going to fall into sin. And that's what happened. They fail to fear him. And so what do they do? They fall into sin. They Make it so their brothers and sisters have to go into slavery, take advantage of the poor. On and on and on it goes. So that's kind of like scene one. And then I'm just going to briefly summarize scene two in the book, uh, in these two chapters, five and six, because it's a whole nother chapter about fear. And so what happens? Well, um, there are people who uh, want to kill Nehemiah. And so they invite him to come talk to him. Hey, Nehemiah. Um, their name is Tobiah, one of the main ones, and Sam Ballot, and um, and there's there's, a, there's another guy, but just you can just put Tobiah in your 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 head, and he sends letters. He says, "Hey, uh, Nehemiah, come talk to us. I want, we want to have a meeting." And Nehemiah's like, "No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have a meeting with you. You're gonna kill me." And they're like, "No, come on." He's like, "No." He says over and over, "No, no, 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 no." So he says no so many times that then they say, "Okay, we're, we're gonna basically we're gonna threaten him. But what we're gonna say is we're gonna send a letter to the king of Persia, and what we're gonna say is we're gonna we're gonna tell him that you want to be the king in." Um, and you're going to become the king based in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah's like, that's not true. But that news, if that news goes to the king of Persia, what do you think the king's going to do? He's going to go kill Nehemiah. So who do you think Nehemiah is more scared of? The king of Persia, the Tobiah, or God? Well, Nehemiah fears God more. So he, doesn't, he says, that's not true, and I'm not scared. So then there are people in the city who are... Um, so aligned with God's enemies and so afraid of them that they've made alliances with men like Tobiah. And so um, there's a prophet who then goes and tries to trick Nehemiah. And he tells Nehemiah that he is about ready to be killed by the God's enemies who are about ready to storm the gate. And the solution is that Nehemiah needs to go lock himself in the temple of the Lord to keep him safe. They're trying to get Nehemiah to sin. They're trying to get him to fall. They're trying to get him to get in fear so that he can be discredited or um, God would. Okay. So 
Does Nehemiah? Okay, no, he doesn't. He holds to the fear of God that Nehemiah should not be in the temple, and so he doesn't go. So, um, what is pretty clear then in chapters 5 and 6 is that it tells this, this stark contrast between the people of God, who by and large as a whole do not fear God, and Nehemiah, who does fear God. And so you see the two very different pictures. You, like, do you know the, those... Um, I don't know, the games or whatever, the, like you have two photos and they look like, or two pictures that they look like almost identical. And then it says like, find 12 differences. And you kind of like, you know, get a stare for a while and you're like, the pickle is not the same in both, you know, whatever. I don't know why that, but anyways, you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. That's kind of like what's happening here. Like you, you get all of the people and Nehemiah, there's very like similar scenes, similar things happening. And you're supposed to see like, wow, there's very, it's very different when I stop and pause. They, and the difference being, that he doesn't, uh, the people don't fear the Lord and Nehemiah does. So, um, therefore, we get um, Nehemiah. This is the kind of person Nehemiah is right here. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. There's a prayer of his, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. That's him. Let your attentive, let your be attentive to my prayer and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear fear your name. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah delights to fear in God. And you just see it play out. He fears God. And, and so, in stark contrast, these Jews are over here cowering in fear about all of these other enemies like Tobiah. And then they don't fear God. And so they treat their own neighbors like they're trash and take advantage of them. And so the, then why? Why go out of the way to point out this contrast? I think it's because we're supposed to see that though Nehemiah is successful in building the wall, and though Nehemiah fears the Lord, that in building this wall, and in Nehemiah being a man who fears the Lord and calls the people to fear the Lord, we are seeing so clearly they do not. So they builds the wall in order to show that they do not fear God, and therefore they need the promised Messiah who would cause them to fear the Lord. Now, here's why I say that. This is the last historical event in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. And I think what it's meant in trying to get us to see is that God has promises yet to be fulfilled. And so here's what I mean. Years before this, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about a day. And so this is a long passage, but I think it's worth reading in whole, in full. Here's Jeremiah 32. We'll pick up at verse 36 in case you want to know where it's at. Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now, therefore, this is Jeremiah prophesying of a day. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which you say, okay, so that's Jerusalem, it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon. Babylon came in and took it over by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will, so in the future, I will gather them, that's my people, from all the countries to which I drove them. Like when they were in Assyria or Babylon, I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. What place? Jerusalem. I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem. And I will make them dwell in safety. Like maybe I'll build a wall around it so they would dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may 
fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will on that day put the fear of me in their hearts and they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So here's the thing. As you see Nehemiah leading people back out of Babylon and out of the Babylonian captivity, just like God promised, I'm going to gather them. I'm going to get them back in the land. And on that day, they're going to dwell in safety. There's going to be a wall that's going to be built. And I promise that on that day, I will work in their hearts so that they would fear me forever. I'll work at everlasting covenant. Here's what we're asking when you turn to Nehemiah. Is this the day? Is this the day that the everlasting covenant is being fulfilled? And the answer from Nehemiah, page after page after page, is no. There's more promises to be fulfilled. You need the Messiah, not just Nehemiah, not just city walls. If you're going to fear my name, you need more. So Nehemiah has built a wall to silence the people's fear of the enemy, but he does so in order to show, or God does so, their need for the Messiah to bring about the change of heart needed to fear the Lord. That's what I think Nehemiah is about. That's what I think five and six is about. That's what I think it's doing. And therefore, when you turn to the first page in the New Testament and you meet Jesus, the author of a new covenant, now we start to think, is this the one who would bring about the change in God's people's heart so they would fear him? Sure enough, what do we see? But that in Christ, God's people are taken from one kingdom to now being a part of a new kingdom. The kingdom of God, and here's what happens. Here's just, I'm just one, there's too many t- texts to go, but here's one. Here's Hebrews 11, or excuse me, 12, 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that, that came because of Christ that cannot be shaken. So you're now part of a kingdom. It can't be, it can't be shaken. You're in the rock. You're safe. You can't, you can't, it can't be undone. You're safe. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see how Christ comes, he changes us from this kingdom to that kingdom, and what's the result? But now God's people see God as a consuming fire and approach him with awe and reverence, but in safety. And now their hearts have been changed. So at stake here are the people's very joy. Because they don't fear God. And then the question then before us is, do we? Do we fear God? Do you look at God with reverence and awe? And do you know he's a consuming fire? I'm going to ask it. Do you know that you're safe as part of his kingdom? So this f- love that casts out fear of punishment. Do you know that you're safe? But even as you know you are safe, do you approach our God with the kind of a f- fear that you would approach a king, a godly king with fear and trembling? So he, what does that look like? I'm just going to give you, and we'll end here. I'm just going to give you um, two last things. Just let me give you an example of what I think this could look like. One, which would be, do you take sin seriously? That's what Nehemiah's generation, they, they totally don't. So what would that look like? If you truly fear God, what would that look like to take sin serious? So just grab a sin. It could be whatever comes to your mind. It could be pornography. It could be gossip. It could be lying. I could, just whatever. Grab, grab a sin in your head, and here's what happens. I think when you fear God, you think, I need to flee that sin. 
Because my God's an awesome and glorious God, and he's not to be trifled with when he says to flee. And so what would that look like? It would look like when you see sin, you would think the, the, the very, like my soul is at stake here if I hear and flirt with this sin. And so, like in a very real way, like this, this is, a, a, again, another example I heard from someone. Um, the fear of God helps us take sin seriously. And so she would be like a literal enactment of that. And I think you'll see when you fear something, how it causes you to do, to fight in a certain way, to, to abandon something. So here's the example. Okay, let's just say you're going, you're about ready to go to a website you should not, you ought not to go to. So you're opening your computer, someone walks in. They point a gun at your head. And they say, I, I won't pull the trigger if you'll shut the computer. Now here's the question. You want to go to, you wanted to go to the website, that's why you opened the computer. Are you going to go? No way. <laughs> no problem. I'm like, okay, good, now we can talk. You know, like, no problem. Why? Why? Why'd you shut the computer? Because you realized what was at stake was your very life. And you thought, one quick thrill at a website or my life. What, 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 I, I'm, I'm scared right now, therefore I'm going to flee this. And so the fear of God would look at God and say, he takes sin so serious that we ought to fear and tremble. That what's at stake when we just kind of fondle and flirt with sin is something not to be trifled with, but to be trembled. And say, leave that for the sake of my soul. That's what it looked like. Now, we don't stop there though. Because look at Nehemiah, and this is where we'll end. Just look at, you know, it's not just that we fear and shake and fear that, that, that sin and its consequences, our very joy is to be found in fearing the Lord. Here's what Nehemiah says. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name. This isn't like a chore. This is like, okay, I'll do it. There is happiness there. He finds great joy in fearing God. Why? Well, because when you're in the crevice of the rock in their storm, slamming against the rock, you're happy because you're safe. There's no happier moment in a child's life than when he's about ready to jump in the pool and he knows daddy's going to catch him. When you understand that the fear of God is not simply just the trembling and, and fear that he takes sin seriously, but when you know that we can fear God like we would fear Aslan, that when you're near the lion and you know that that lion, oh, he's not safe, but he's good, and you're on his side, that makes you so joyful at every moment so that you can say, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. At, at stake here is not just simply fuel to flee from sin, fuel for your very joy, your very happiness found in the Lord. And so here's what I want to do. I want to call us to the Lord's table. Uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, just about. And what we get to do is we get to remember that though our God is a king who we would approach rightly with awe, this king has adopted us into his family. And what he does is he invites us to his table. We're not to, to stand off in a distance saying, I don't want to get, I'm really scared, like this is weird. No, he says, come near my table. Yes, honor me, revere me, but you're welcome in my presence. That's what happens in Christ, that you're welcomed into his presence, but only in Christ. 
Oh, if you're not in Christ, then there is a lot of fear you ought to have. But if you are, here's what we get to do. We get to remember that we're invited to our very king's table. He's not doing it begrudgingly, unhappy, but with joy. Now, here's, here's just to be clear. What I want to say is that if, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're not here and saying, I find my safety in the one that God sent, the promised one, if that's not you, would you let the elements pass? And would you go to Christ this morning? And if you are one who finds your very security and shelter in Christ, I will invite you to grab the elements. We'll hold on to them. I'll come back up and I will lead us to take those together. I'm um, going to invite the worship team up um, and they'll just play some some instruments and we um, will distribute the elements and I'll come back up and we'll sing one more song and then you'll hear from Jacob in closer service. So let me pray. Father, thank you, oh God, that you are a God, that you are to be feared. You are a God who made a way so that we know our good, holy, awesome God is one who we get to now dine with at your table. What a gift, Father. Would we take this moment to just remind our hearts that you are to be revered and we are to stand in awe, and yet what joy that we even get to stand in your presence. Meet us now as we come to your table. In your son's name, 